and I'm glad to be with you. This is an unusual setting. You seem so far apart. <laughs> but at the same time, we're here. And there's so much against the church right now that I think just seeing you here, it encourages my heart. There's so much that Satan, I think, is trying to do to divide us that when we actually gather, we're speaking into that. And by our testimony and by our care for one another, whether you're in a mask or not, we're trying to love each other, right? And our aim here is to fulfill the law through love. Not that our love is going to do it, but that the love we've received from Christ that we sang about, that is our hope, the love that bolsters us when we remember we have not done the Lord's will this week with absolute clarity and perfection. Our hope is not in our perfection. Our hope is in Christ. I am so encouraged to be able to preach this morning, to share the word of God with you. And we are in Luke 6. And if you would turn there, um, I think you will find the text. Uh, I'm not sure where it is on your pages, um, but it is in Luke 6. All right. I didn't get one of the, the pew Bibles. And the, the fact is we don't have those on hand right now anyway. So directing you to where that is in the pew Bibles would not necessarily be helpful to you this morning. And they're not even pews, they're seats. So there you go. All right, Luke chapter 6. And in just a moment, I will be uh, preaching from verses 43 to 49. I'm thankful for Patrick Hobbs. I'm thankful for the ministry um, that he is leading in the hub along with Audra and how she led in worship, uh, leading us in song this morning. Um, I'm grateful for all the evidences that I'm seeing of God at work through our leaders and our young people, and just the untold uh, care and the untold love and good works that that will have uh, throughout eternity. So praise God for them. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, we're finishing this morning in this kingdom authority subsection of the gospel of Luke, what has been called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, this is different from the Sermon on the Mount, which is in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. The Sermon on the Plain takes place after Jesus has come down from a mountain and selected his disciples and called them to him, and he's now out on a level place. And remember, the imagery here is he's called his disciples closest to him, so they're perhaps in the, the concentric circle that's just around him. And then just beyond those disciples, are untold hundreds, perhaps thousands of other people who have come to listen to what Jesus has to say. But their motives for being there were, were quite mixed. They had come because they'd gotten fed. They had come because Jesus had healed a number of people, and they too were looking for healing. And they were curious what he had to say. But along the way, Jesus, who knows the hearts of men, knew what kind of challenge he would need to give each of these people who were, who were listening. And often he would take a step back and he would say, for those of you who hear, this is what I have to say. This is what the truth is. And so as we conclude today, my burden has been that we would not hear the messages of the past few weeks that Pastor Sam has preached. And most of them have included the word love, right? So love listens, love acts, love does other things. There's a lot of things that love does. And my concern has been that we would hear each of those sermons and leave, perhaps like I did last week, thinking, oh, now I've got a bunch of things I have to do. It is true that we need to obey. 
And a large portion of the text today is about obeying Christ. But with the moral teaching of the Sermon on the Plain, there may be some here who think, well, I can do those things if I just try a little bit harder. And Jesus came to tell me what to do, and if he told me what to do, then I'll just do it. My burden is that you perhaps would think that and conclude wrongly that it's possible to do that. Oftentimes we do settle for outward behavior modification, when really what the Lord is all about is heart change. And Jesus is so burdened that the people listening to him then and now get the fact that he wants their hearts, that he focuses on the heart as he concludes the Sermon on the Plain. Verses 43 to 49 give us a, a glimpse of the kingdom heart. And that's the title of the message this morning, the kingdom heart. And I want to talk about the imagery that Jesus gives. He gives a couple of ways that we can assess if we have a kingdom heart. He tells us that in verses 43 uh, down to verse 45, he says, if you want to know if you have a kingdom heart, then you can trace the fruit to the root. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that and explain what Jesus possibly means by that. He also tells us that you can know if you have a kingdom heart, a heart for the king, a heart that loves Jesus and is being transformed by him. You can know this if you check your foundation right now before the flood. And when I conclude today, I want to be crystal clear about what it means to get a kingdom heart. And so in point three, getting a kingdom heart, really focusing in on one sentence that Jesus gives us in verse 46 to help us understand better what it means to have a heart that belongs to him. So let's get into this today. Let's look at verses 43 and 44 at Luke, in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. Now, last week, Pastor Sam, when he preached, he talked about some self-evident truths. There are certain things that you can just notice and that are just a part of the fabric of life. And we would agree, oh, that's, that's a self-evident truth. Well, if you see an apple tree, apples growing on a tree, then it's pretty self-evident that the truth is that's an apple tree, right? If you see a fig tree, which we've got three in our yard now, thanks to Fred and Ruth Blevins, who brought a bunch of them over and helped us plant them. No figs are growing yet. Now, I am so ignorant of what trees are. If I didn't see figs growing on the fig trees in their yard, I wouldn't know that what I've got is a fig tree, because leaves alone won't tell you unless you're an expert. But when the fruit comes out, I'm going to be, be rejoicing for some figs that come out, and I'm going to know it's a self-evident truth. That's a fig tree. Jesus loved to do this as he looked around. He wanted people to get what he was saying by looking at nature and talking about things that they would see in their everyday life. He also said, you know, if you see a thorn bush, that thing is not going to produce apples. If you see a bramble over here, that's not going to start popping out figs. He said, the fact of the matter is, it's self-evident that each tree is known by its fruit. Now, what does that have to do 
with people and what Jesus is saying about the heart. Well, if we are tracing the fruit to the root, Jesus is so concerned that we get a spiritual truth. And here's the spiritual truth. It's in verse 45. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. And this is the key phrase here. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. That's Luke 6, 45. So what is it that Jesus wants us to connect here from trees to people? Well, in order to understand what kind of tree you've got, Jesus says again, you look at the fruit. And in order to know what's going on in a person's heart, we can see and listen to the words that they're saying, the acts that they're doing. If we want to know what's really going on down deep inside them, it's kind of like tracing that fruit on the tree down to its very root. An apple tree produces apples. Likewise, a good heart produces good deeds. A good heart produces good words. An evil tree, or I say a bad tree, maybe a thorny tree, produces thorns. Likewise, an evil person, out of his evil heart or her evil heart, will produce evil deeds, say evil things. So the connection here is really about what's going on where you treasure things inside you. Jesus is not so concerned about your outward performance as he is concerned about your inner treasure, what you value most, what you want most. And at the end of the day, what you most desire to have and to hold. Jesus sees humans divided as either good or evil. What makes a person good or evil? I think about how many times people try to put these matters on a scale. Perhaps you're here today and you think, if I want to be really acceptable to God, then I think I need to have a certain amount of good works. And if those good works were put on a scale, at the, end of the, at the end of my life, God is going to have to look at what I've done, and hopefully my good works on the scale will be heavier than my bad works, and I can get in. See, most of us think in terms of a human scale like that. Jesus is not thinking in a scale like that at all. His measurement is to look at and to listen for the words that come out of a person's mouth because it will reveal what they most treasure. He's talking about the heart. Several years ago, while my wife and I were still in Beijing, uh, we met a young professional by the name of Bruce, and he came to our church uh, for a Christmas service that we were doing. Um, admittedly, he was uh, a Christmas and Easter type Christian who hadn't been to church for Christmas or Easter in many, many years. And he came out of curiosity, and being in Beijing, he was away from his home culture in Australia, and he was eager to, to figure out what was true about the, the claims of the Christian life. I got to meet with Bruce a couple of times, 
One night, about two hours long, um, I got to share the gospel with him very clearly. It seemed to be connecting. Um, But I learned a couple of things about him. Although he was a white Australian, he spoke impeccable Chinese. And he could cuss like nobody else I'd ever met. All right, so I invited him to come over to our house. And I I knew my my young wife, uh, sensitive as she was, understood people. And she got the human heart. And she would not have a problem accepting Bruce and providing some hospitality. So I don't even remember what we ate that night. But I do remember we talked for a long time in our living room after dinner. And one of the questions that he asked, he said, if I really do get serious with God, and if I become a Christian, does that mean I have to stop cussing? And as I was trying to think about a, a spiritual response to help him, you know, I was, I was so impressed with my wife. She spoke up and, he, and she said, you know, you will find that the Lord will put words in your mouth that are so much better than cussing. Things that are good and right and true. He'll transform the way that you speak because he'll reach your heart. Um, that was so good. I didn't have to say anything. You know, we lost track of Bruce sometime after that. And, and I don't know. I don't know what happened to him. But I do know that the Lord is looking not to clean up somebody's outside, but to actually get their heart. You know, there's another story about somebody with a foul mouth. Pastor Kent Hughes, not him, he's a well-known pastor. He once shared a story um, about a lady and who wrote about a man with a foul mouth, all right? So it wasn't the lady either. Her name was Bethan Lloyd-Jones. She was the wife of British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones. And she wrote about a man who lived in the village where she was, And it was a remarkable story about the conversion of somebody with a very foul mouth. Here's what what she said. His speech was so blasphemous and filthy that even his toughest acquaintances were sickened by him. So that he was almost always left to to drink by himself. Now, after meeting Christ, he he was converted. He found that he could not speak without swearing. The words poured forth before he could even think. He was sickened himself by the filth that came out of his mouth. But deliverance came. He was dressing for work one day and could not locate his socks. Instinctively, he shouted to his wife, I can't find my blank socks. He didn't say blank. Where are the blank things? As his words echoed back, sorrow gripped him. And he fell back on his bed and he cried aloud, Oh, Lord, cleanse my tongue. Lord, I can't even ask for a pair of socks without swearing. Please have mercy on me and give me a clean tongue. Lying there, he knew something had happened. And from that day on, no foul or blasphemous word ever came from his lips. Now, sometimes remarkable transformation happens like that. And we call out to the Lord And something happens because he is trustworthy and true. When we call out to him, he transforms our foul hearts. Now, this man had already come to Christ. But an evidence of that was that he was grieved when his mouth spoke horrible, foul, coarse language. The Bible tells us, let no corrupt talk, let no coarse language come out of your mouths. 
Many of you here today need to take that to heart. And I hope that when you do, if those things come out of your mouth, it will break you like it did that man in England who had so isolated himself from everybody by his foul mouth, but saw in Jesus one who was not repulsed by him. But Jesus received him. And Jesus continued to transform his heart. Jesus wants everyone's heart. I'm not trying to beat you up today if you have a foul mouth, but I'm going to encourage you that the hope to get rid of foul, coarse language is not to clean up your act. It's to cry out to the Lord alone who can deliver you and to see your heart transformed. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. And Jesus knows that we need him for a, a good heart. We can't produce that on our own. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 6 says this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves. It's an awful phrase. Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Sounds a lot like our media today. And the secular sources that say, judge not, but then have the cancel culture to write everyone out who doesn't agree with the predominant narrative. God forbid that the church continues to act that way. But instead, Titus goes on to say, but when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, mercy to melt a hardened heart by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit that heart change to be like Christ and to love him this Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior we need to be saved to produce good works out of a good heart well, my friend, here today, you may be thinking, how can I know that I have this good heart? Well, Jesus gives us another picture to help us. And here's the other picture. He wants us, if we would have a kingdom heart, to check our foundation before the flood. So verses, it's actually going to be 46 to 49. I know the, the screen there says differently. It's verses 46 to 49. Here's what we have in verse 46. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? This is so interesting to me because apparently even saying the right words and cleaning up your speech is not good enough. You know, it's possible, even like many people in the time of Jesus, to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. Right? One Lord is sufficient. It's a person saying, you're my master. Lord, Lord, expresses extreme devotion to the master. And so Jesus is saying, it's not enough to say my title twice. It's not enough to use spiritual language. It's not enough 
to have your outward life conformed to a standard. He says, let me tell you what it's like for somebody who comes to me and hears and does what I say. And then he gives us two illustrations of two separate houses. Look at the text again, uh, down in verse 47. It says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose and a stream broke against that house and, and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now Jesus gives us these vivid illustrations, and I have known about this passage and its corollary passage in Matthew 7 since I was a little kid, and we sang that song. You kids here probably know, the wise man built his house upon the rock, right? It's true, he did, according to Jesus. He built his house with a strong foundation by digging down to the bedrock so that it had some place to stand when the storms came. When, when Jesus was saying this on the plain, there was enough property around the region of Galilee and Capernaum that was flat and was subject to being a floodplain and streams rising up quickly and having very destructive force. Jesus said two houses in that floodplain, one stands the test of the flood because the foundation was dug way down deep. And the other that's just put on top that looks the same on the outside but has no foundation, he says about that house, the destruction of that house, the ruin of that house was great. Uh, that is the end of Jesus' sermon. And then it says he, verse 1 of chapter 7, he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people and he entered Capernaum. So... Jesus leaves the people with a real humdinger here at the end. The ruin of that house was great. And what must we learn? Well, one of the things that I see from this is that storms, trials, trouble, pain, suffering will come into your life and your life and your life, and your life, and my life. Trouble comes for all of us. It's guaranteed. Jesus guarantees this. Both houses were affected by the same flood. One prevailed. The other was ruined. And the ruin was great. Obedience to Christ is the only sure foundation. Obedience to Christ is the only sure foundation. When the day of trouble comes, only those who have committed to Jesus Christ will survive and even thrive. Recently, um, I watched a video of a lady named Vanitha Riser. Uh, Vanitha was born in India, and she contracted polio when she was three months old. This is after polio had been eradicated. 
she went to the doctor, her parents took her there, and the doctor had no experience with polio and diagnosed her wrong and sent her home, and the next day, Vanitha was paralyzed. Um, she underwent 21 surgeries by the time she was 14. And at age 16, frustrated by how her life was, was spent already, she turned to God's word. She went to John 9. She saw how a man who was born blind was not born blind because of his own sin or from his parents' sin, but was blind so that the works of God could be shown in his life. And Venetha realized that Jesus was Lord in charge of all things, and she submitted her life to him, the only one, she concluded, who could make anything out of the mess of her life. Well, she figured everything would go well after that, and the surgeries restored her as much as she could be, and she got married, and she had three children. One of those children, by another doctor's mistake, died at two months old based on a misdiagnosis. Again, Benita was crushed, but she clung to God's word, believing him even when he didn't understand. But then in 2003, she was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome. This comes back on people who have had polio at times, and it's a, a further weakening and degenerating of their limbs. The more energy you use now, the less you have for a future use. And then, to make matters even worse, in 2009, her first husband left her for another woman and filed for divorce. I found her video on Randy Alcorn's blog, and he said, uh, on, <laughs> on top of where the video was, he said, now, th these are all the things that happened. Now, please watch the video. Even if you think you'll be depressed, you will be encouraged because of how the Lord has worked in Venetha's life. So I did watch it. You know, and many people... Even professing Christians would look at what happened to Vanitha and say, how could God do something like that? Why would God allow that? Or they even see the, the, the revealed truth of God's word, but their experience just seems not to agree with that. How could Jesus allow something like this? And Vanitha reckons with that. She wrestles with that. And in the video, this is what she said. She said about her own self. She says, I think adversity, if we turn to God in it, it keeps us from walking away from him because we need him and we know him in a different way through the adversity. He's not just the giver of good gifts, but the one who walks with us. She said, and I don't think you see that many people who get the sense of God's presence walking with them unless they call out to him and they need him. She said, I feel like it was God's grace to give me suffering because it has made me deeper and made me love God more. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Recently, my wife and I watched uh, a documentary on Netflix, one of the only good things on Netflix anymore. It's called American Gospel, Christ Alone. I recommend that. Please go and watch that. You can rent it if you don't have Netflix. Um, and it's about how here in America, we have accepted the wrong gospel. And we've made a very Americanized gospel. And it's about us, about what we can get, about what God can give us. And we burn out so often if we don't get those things. American gospel reveals what that Americanized gospel is as it's been farmed out, shipped out of this country by so many false teachers of the prosperity gospel. And it names names. Go watch this thing. 
so you can see who they are and avoid them. The Bible tells us to mark them so that we can avoid them. Thank you, Pastor Al. All right, but in that documentary, there's one woman named Catherine Berger, and she shares her story of how she was living the American dream, and she desired to be fit and to have four kids, but when she had her first kid, she actually found out that she had some severe problems that have gotten worse and worse and worse and actually confined, confined her to being fed through a feeding tube and also to having oxygen constantly through the oxygen machine. But I can remember her saying, I wouldn't trade what I am now and who I am now in my experience with God and his word for anything that I had before I knew him. I would not trade my suffering in order to get back my life before Jesus Christ. And I just thought, how is that possible? It's possible because the rock is down there. The foundation can be dug. And we can trust that when the storms come, he will sustain us. He is the one who keeps his people. He is the one who fills us with love and forgiveness, patience, kindness. My wife is also, I'm sharing these various stories because I think it, it fits the pattern of what we need to know about the storms of life so that we can be prepared. My wife recently listened to the story of a lady by the last name of Wesco, it's Stephanie Wesco. Her husband and she were missionaries in Cameroon. One day while they were driving, separatists and soldiers in the West African nation of Cameroon who were fighting Charles Wesco, who's 44, with his wife and kids, was driving through a region and the car was peppered with multiple gunshots and Charles Wesco was killed with a shot to the head. Now Stephanie survived and so did all the kids. And before that event happened, she had been meditating on the word of God and how the Lord is a rock. The Lord sustains his people and calls us to forgive. And she felt burdened to forgive those separatists and soldiers in that fight and the one who had even killed her husband, Charles. And what struck me was that the one interviewing her, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, said, in those testing periods, please hear this, if you haven't been trusting God and getting to know his character and anchoring your heart to his word and his truth, if you haven't been doing that in the light, then when the lights go out, you're not going to have that steady resting place for your soul. The reality, my friends, Jesus is concerned that we have a kingdom heart, a heart that is set on the kingdom and its king. How do we get that kingdom heart? Let's conclude with this. I know we're, we're going a bit long here, but have patience as I go through this final point, getting a kingdom heart. Look back at verse 46 of Luke chapter 6. Jesus says there, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me, he says in verse 47, and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. That's when he says he's like the one who builds his house on a rock with its foundation dug deep. As I leave you today, 
here's what I want to encourage you from the words of Jesus to think about and how you respond. The first is this, come to Christ. If you want to understand Jesus, if you want to have a heart for the king and the kingdom, then come to Christ. Matthew chapter 11 is one, perhaps the only place, where Jesus tells us about his heart. If you want to know about a kingdom heart, then go to the king of the kingdom and find out what his heart is like. And I point you to Matthew chapter 11 because I want you to think about who you're coming to. Whether you are a non-Christian here today, and I'm compelling you today to come to Christ. You might say, well, how? He's a historical figure. Or at best, if you think he's alive now, which he is, he's in heaven. How can I come to him? You come by faith, trusting what he says about himself. And you submit your life. You give up your own way. You trust him. Jesus says about himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. I think that describes me today probably describes you. He says, and I will give you rest. Isn't that good? Come to Christ. He doesn't say, come to me so that you can fulfill all my bidding and obey all my laws. Right? Obedience is important. I'll get to that. But he says in the first place, come and I will give you rest. Not lay more burdens on you. He actually says of himself and of his heart, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Isn't this so good about Jesus? Of all the things that it could say, of all the things that he could have said about his heart, I am sovereign and I am the authority. No, he says, I am gentle. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean wimpy. It means approachable. The king is approachable. Even today, in his sovereignty, lifted high above all the heavens and earth, he is approachable even now. And he in his glory, as he did in, in Revelation 1, would put his hand on you, bowed before him in his absolute splendor and sovereignty and say, don't be afraid. Fear not. Please arise. He's approachable and he's lowly in heart. That means that his heart breaks for the sinners and those who suffer in this world. And he is here even now to restore, to save, come to Christ. Well, likewise, he says, I'll tell you about those who come to me and those who hear. Secondly, hear the word of Christ. Hear the word of Christ. You know, Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, and as Pastor Sam shared with us a few weeks ago, that love listens. Well, those who love Christ submit themselves to him and listen well to what he says. I love how the Lord says in Matthew 4, chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the heart's cry of someone who has come to Jesus and seen him as gentle and lowly and powerful to save 
And they say, I need you. Like we sang this morning, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And the Lord says, I sustain you by my word. He says so many times, John 14 and John 15, if you love me, keep my commands. The one who obeys me is the one who loves me. This is what the Lord's heart is. Just as I obey my Father in all things and know his love, so you obey my commands and show that you love me. And that gets us to the last thing he says. Luke chapter 6, verse 47, do his word. Do what Christ says. There are those verses in John 14 and 15. This past week, a young man wrote an email to John Piper, and he has that podcast called Ask Pastor John. It's really where you can see John Piper at his most pastoral. He says a lot of confusing things. I think so. But the crystal clarity of his love for God always comes through. And in this particular case, a young man wrote, and he said, sometimes I feel overwhelmed because of what seems like a mounting list of things I must do to become like Jesus. I feel stressed out because I want to please God. But it feels like there are so many things to do. Kill sin, grow in fruits of the Spirit, be the best worker I can be, live and pour myself out to my community, my church, pursue people to disciple, mission, live a healthy lifestyle, Sabbath properly, and also endure suffering. He says, I know Jesus said in this world we will have trouble and he has overcome the world, but it just seems like there are so many things I need to do. Do I focus on certain things over others or try to focus on a little bit of everything? At the end of the day, all I want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know if you ever feel that way. You know, a bit, bit of anxiety inside because you want to obey the Lord and you genuinely want to please him and you know obedience is important. So what do we do when we're overwhelmed? Well, John Piper says that sometimes we have to make the situation worse to really understand the truth of what to do. He said that the list that the young man provided was impressive, but he said, you know, Paul's 13 letters have 431 commands for Christians to obey. The general epistles have 128 commands. And the gospels, Matthew through John, have 1,000 22 commands. Are you with me so far? That means in order to obey Jesus, to do what Christ says, you have to keep in mind over 1,500 commands. None of us can do that. You think about it, that, that's an improbable way to live the Christian life. So what do we do? Because those commands are there, and Jesus says clearly, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. So here's some encouragement, and I think this is a way to think about it. Don't set out to obey God to get his favor or acceptance. Because Jesus has done that for you already. Faith is taking hold of what Jesus has done. 1 Corinthians 1.30, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. All of the things we lack by our obedience, we have in Christ. And he is our security before God. But secondly, obedience really does matter. 
We can't conclude that because Jesus has perfectly obeyed, then we can just kind of write off the commands and not have to focus on them. God says, no, that's not what you can do. Jesus says, it's crucial that if your heart has really been transformed, that you show that by your obedience. So here's what I would suggest we do. Remember in the first point, we trace the fruit to the root. John Piper actually says that there are some commands that are oriented around fruit and some that go way back down to the root. Root things concern faith and hope and love. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is why Jesus focuses on it so much in the Sermon on the Plain. This is why he draws attention back to loving your enemies, loving your neighbor, loving them as you wish to be loved. Jesus knows that so much of the fruit that he desires to see from his people will start spontaneously popping out if they are certain of the love of God. My friends, secure yourselves and send your foundation down deep to the rock of the love of God for you. Continue to meditate on that every day. And then purpose, like Paul says in Romans chapter 13, to love others. I, I love that he says in verse 8 of Romans 13, Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So much to unpack in that one verse, but just suffice to say, Paul says, any command that you can think of can be fulfilled in the primary command to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And finally, my friends, there are still 1,500 to 1,800 commands in the New Testament alone. What are we to do with those? Well, I love what John Piper says. He says, use those commands as a litmus test, a guide for you along the way. As you look at them, don't write them off and say, well, that's impossible to do. But set out your heart to love others. And then as you see what he has said to guide you, right? So he says, love your enemies, do good, bless, pray, forgive, turn the other cheek, Use these as guides for what the shape of love really will look like in day-to-day -day interaction. I think it's going to be like that man with the foul mouth who is cussing for a pair of socks. This is how it's going to be in your obedience sometimes. Not that you're going to do that exact action. But I think it's going to be like this. You're going to recognize your inability to do certain things. And you're going to come back to Jesus with your heart full of the recognition of how dirty you still are inside, but how much you want to please him. And to go, again know that he is lowly and gentle. He receives you. He continues to transform you and to help you to have a life of obedience and the clear pathways to live out the Sermon on the Plain. Well, friends, let's pray. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come back up here as I do. 
Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you have given us the gracious word in the Sermon on the Mount that our hearts need to be transformed and that Jesus desires to work in us, that he, he wants us to experience the fruit bearing that comes from a good heart. And we love Jesus because he first loved us and out of his good heart, he laid down his life and died for unworthy sinners. How, how gracious you are, Lord, and how needy we are. Help us to respond to you with faith and hope and love as we close. In Jesus' name, amen.